Welcome to the latest Savings Guru podcast. I'm delighted to be joined today by Ewan Edwards, who's the Savings Director of Oldermore. Ewan, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us. I'm really looking forward to uh, to talking to you today because I, I kind of see Oldermore as the original challenger bank. You were you were kind of the first one to go in in May 2009. Perhaps perhaps you can start you and by just telling us a little bit more about the history of Oldermore and and, and how the bank started. Sure. Um, so Oldermore was born out of the financial crisis in in 2009. Um, they do say that every kind of crisis brings an opportunity uh, and our founding fathers um, recognised that there was an opportunity in, in the UK sort of financial services marketplace that were not being as well served by the, the big established banks. Oldermore is a, is a specialist bank um, offering um, straightforward lending and, and savings products to really to a couple of markets, small and medium sized enterprises, so SMEs, uh, homeowners, landlords and an individual savers so quite a simple uh, product and market set um, we have no branch network uh, and we serve our customers and intermediaries mostly online and also with some telephone support and since that time we've grown to around half a million customers across all the business lines and all our operations are are based in the uk the bank made its first profit after three years and then in 2015, the private equity backers floated the business and Oldermore entered the FTSE 250. And then in 2018, Oldermore was acquired by First Rand Group of South Africa. First Rand are one of the so-called big four banks over there, a bit like we have in the UK. Yeah. Um, First Rand already had a UK business, actually, um, Motonovo, which is a, a car financing business based in, in Cardiff. And essentially, they wanted to initially, at least, shift their funding model um, into sterling as a way to avoid uh, exchange rate risk. But they also saw in Aldermore a disruptive player that had grown really quickly and organically, which they felt they could take to the next level with all their kind of help and, and support. And to be honest, that integration has been has been pretty seamless. Actually, we retain the Aldermore brand, as I'm sure you can see. Uh, we keep the up to keep the FCA license, the FSCS protection, and essentially the same management team. In fact, in many ways, customers would be would be none the wiser. The result really is that we've retained our challenger brand credentials and our challenger ethos, but just now with the kind of added support and resources of, of a large parent, and we think that's good for customers and and colleagues. I think that's uh, that, that's a really good point there. I, I think I think it's quite unusual when you see a big brand take over. Uh, another company that as a customer you it's rare that you don't see sort of any sign of that usually there is there's sort of some change in in the way things operate but uh, I, I would say certainly uh from from the outside I, i've seen little evidence of of kind of a big big parent takeover at, at more it's so i think your point there about yeah i don't i don't think savers would know particularly uh, is quite a positive thing that you you haven't had a big company bearing huge influence on what you they've you know it seems from the outside they've largely left you carry on to do you know what you have been doing yeah it's that. that's right they have absolutely i mean obviously behind the scenes there's things that go on in terms of of course you know some of the mi integration and the legals but absolutely to the outside world it's still older more we still operate in the same markets so yeah absolutely it's um, very much a kind of behind the scenes merger if you like 
Um, I think that's testament to the brand equity and the success of the Oldermore brand in the UK. I mean, why would you give up on a on a success story? So, and I think no, they they definitely saw uh, an opportunity to to retain the brand, to retain the management team, and in, and in many ways retain the strategy, um, but just with that added protection and resources. And that's to say that is ultimately good for for customers, um, and obviously it's good it's good for colleagues as well. Yeah, you mentioned there the the half a million customers milestone you know you know, the last public yes. results uh, you'd gone through 10 billion of savings which is a you know pretty significant milestone what's the kind of plan next how how big do you think the Oldermore can grow you're right james i mean we passed that milestone uh this year um in fact we actually did close on 11 billion by the time the results were announced particularly strong growth in personal savings We've also got a, a business savings book as well. So when we talk about savings in Oldermore, it's worth just reminding ourselves that we have a personal savings franchise and a, and a small business um, franchise. In terms of growth, I think there's a lot more we can do, both in terms of what we've been doing historically, but also in terms of what we might do differently now that we're part of, of the bigger group. I think if I look at the, the UK business, um, Oldermore has a number of finance uh, divisions, lend, uh, business finance, car finance, all with their own customers. And I think one opportunity is to be able to uh, distribute savings accounts across those customers and, and to deepen those relationships across the group. But I think also we can develop the, the savings franchise more in the UK and to actually think of it as a franchise rather than just seeing it as a as a funding vehicle for for assets, we um, internally, at least, we describe our mission within savings, uh, our objective as great returns effortlessly, and I think that sort of sums up um, our offer to, to the market uh, and what's important for customers. It was relevant over the last eleven years, and I think it's still relevant going forward, and, I, and it and it plays to. I think what's really relevant to to modern savers, they they look for a great return. That's obvious. It's a very commoditized market. Uh, a new player can do nothing else really in terms of its rate position. But effortlessly, I think also talks to two main elements. I guess one is the need for really simple, always-on, frictionless online processes, which obviously is right for the times. And to back that up with people support behind the website you know real people you know sat in the uk answering calls when you need to most customers are happy to to open their accounts and serve them themselves online but with the reassurance of knowing that there's people sat behind the website and that kind of combination if you like of digital and human we think's a really powerful um, combination and uh, as i say it's served as well in the last 11 years i think it will continue to serve as well going forward. And, and I think critically as well, James, it's, it's a real differentiation from the, the big established banks. And uh, yes, rates might be low in absolute terms, but we're still able to offer a relatively good proposition, both in terms of rates and convenience. I was going to ask you about uh, what, kind of what's been your su- you know, reasons for your success, but you've, got, you, you've probably covered a lot of that. I, I think from, you know, from my perspective, uh, as a you know, someone who's obviously got a keen interest in this space. You know, I've noticed things like I think you were one of the first, really, to embrace customer feedback, um, particularly. And, and certainly, I've noticed that things that where where you did get constructive feedback from customers, it was seized upon pretty quickly, and things were 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 tweaked and tailored and improved. But it seems to be that 
that that's where your focus has been really kind of trying to make a difference there yes you, you you're right to pick up on that actually i think that aspect of our of our journey where we invite customers to give us ratings and we publish those ratings on the website as i'm sure you've seen and they're unedited in fact, i think we're one of the first fs providers to actually do that and i think that's um that's important for a number of reasons. One, first of all, it's a very explicit demonstration that you're a customer-centric business. If you're prepared to publish unedited reviews on your website of what people think about your service and products, then I think that says something about your ethos and your and your transparency. Um, and you're right, we've been doing that for, for many years. We have an established um, voice of customer program. We, we regularly um, invite feedback after a number of triggers, whether that's new account opening or um, maturity, um, and we're really proud of it. You know, we have um, net promoter scores are in the range of you know between fifty and sixty, um, which you know is 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 great. Um, and also, we invite customers to uh, use external platforms as well, James. So you're probably familiar with Trustpilot, which is one of the more established of the sort of third-party review sites. Um, and again, if you take a look at that, um, you know, again, we're very proud of our performance on, on that. So we're currently rated as um, excellent, where we've got more than four out of five stars. Again, very similar to our internal voice of customer survey. And I think that's important in, in a kind of modern digital space where, you know, let's face it, savings is a relatively commoditized market. And uh, we think this is a, a way of you know, extending our reach, you know, reinforcing that great returns effortlessly mantra um, and we're, we're really proud of it and I think also internally it, it by having that it, it just keeps us on our toes you know it drives that kind of continuous improvement um, I mean I personally read Trustpilot every day you know it's a bit like my own internet you know I'm, I'm always reading it yeah. um, and and take great pleasure from seeing the comments um, and you know we exist to serve customers and when they give you that feedback and you can read it in real time it's it's fantastic yeah, I, I can certainly relate to that myself. Inevitably, you have to deal with with the occasional time when things go wrong. But it's a pleasure when you then get you know the correspondence from from customers saying, "Yeah, thanks, you got it. You know, got it bang on there." I, I think what's really interesting is that uh, the, the sheer volume of of customer reviews you you get, which I think for me always tells a, a story. I think if if customers see that yeah, there isn't a, an acknowledgement and a, a reaction to their feedback then they kind of stop doing it if they don't see that um you know you take on board their feedback then then they, they kind of stop bothering and the, the, the sheer numbers that you you have on your your ratings says that yeah clearly your savers do feel that it is taken on board they you know they they feel like they're validating what you've you've just said there and Absolutely. by by continuing to give you that that feedback because they believe that that is being acted upon and you mentioned that you've got the the business savings which is you know a very significant proportion of your book uh, and, and you outsource though the operational management of the, the personal savings but you manage business savings in in-house i wonder right. if you could kind of talk a bit about the reason for that sort of split servicing model sure um so when we first launched Aldermore back in in 2009 um in order to kind of get to market um, quickly and you know, make the most of the opportunity, we we turned to an, an established third-party administrator for for savings um, servicing. Um, as I say, this provided a kind of turnkey solution um, and critically is is invisible to the customer. So customers hear, read, and see Aldermore, 
in terms of the website and in terms of um, the, the telephone service. In fact, we even treat the third party as you know very much part of the the Aldermore, the Aldermore family. So in personal savings, it, it definitely got us to market uh, quickly uh, with no customer detriment. And of course, the other thing they do as well is they bring us operational bandwidth. So when you're you know, having uh, periods of high demand, they have the, the operational capacity to be able to cope with that uh, in a way that would be more challenging if we had it in, in-house. In the case of business savings, that came along a few years later in, in 2012, and the, the same third party at the time didn't have a, a corresponding um, business savings module. So uh, instead, we worked with a, with a separate supplier, uh, a fintech, who were able to develop a, a more bespoke solution uh, to suit our needs. And also, we used our own internal uh, Aldermore colleagues for, for the customer services team. Both teams are based in the UK. I think that's quite important um, in, in the UK savings market. And I think that model, um, that split model, if you like, provides um, a degree of operational resilience, but also allows us to diversify our funding, as you, as you said. And, it, and it's worked really well. But to the outside world, and, and, and also within Oldermore, um, it's, it is very much, you know, look, see and hear Oldermore. The fact that we use a third party is is purely purely for you know operational convenience and flexibility. Um, it's, they very much live and breathe the older more values, if you like. That's a really interesting point, and as you'll be aware, I know I know that third party provider m- myself quite quite well. And and one of the the things that struck me is the is the difference between the providers that use them in terms of of some you know, treat it very transactionally, uh, and and others like yourself clearly integrate them as part of the the team and having it have them as an extension of the the brand rather than treat them as a separate you know entity uh, and i think that that makes a huge amount of difference in terms of the results you get back as a as a consequence absolutely i mean as i said earlier we you know we very much regard them as as part of the team i mean i, I don't differentiate particularly between whether they sit you know in the third party or or sit within Oldermore itself, you know, as far as I'm concerned, we're all supporting the old the Oldermore savings proposition, and you know we operate as as one team. Um, the, the other thing I'd add, actually, about um, particularly about our personal um, savings operation, and, and an example really of, of how we we really obsess about customers. You know, we talked earlier about um, customer feedback loops and, and ratings and reviews, but we also you know really take the trouble to um, make sure that the the offline processes, if you like, when people have a reason to to speak with us are as good as they can be. You know, most customers in savings are happy to self-serve. Most people will open their account online and, and service online. But there are occasions when um, online processes you know, don't really lend themselves particularly well. So if I think about, you know, various aspects of kind of customer vulnerability or whether it's those kind of emotionally intense processes like for example, bereavements or um, things like power of attorney, where they're you know quite in, um, quite high risk, quite emotional processes, quite complex processes in many ways. Actually, they don't they don't lend themselves particularly well to um, online processing, and that's where I think the power of an established um, human um, team can really um, support your proposition because. Those kind of moments of truth, so-called, can often really um, colour your relationship. Uh, and so I think going back to what I said earlier, that that blend of always on really convenient digital servicing for most people most of the time, 
complemented by great people service when you need it is a is a powerful and relevant proposition for for the times that we're in oh, absolutely we, we've we've talked quite a bit about um what what has gone on uh, if we can turn to the future perhaps uh, I'd, I'd be really interested in what, what your plans going forward what what, what do you have in have up your sleeve for savers in the future is it oh my secret you sort of yeah <laughs> uh, absolutely uh uh, yeah, what, what you, whatever you can share, we'd be very interested. Sure. Well, I'll share what I'm able to, James. I mean, I think the first thing I'd say is, um, and I touched on it earlier, actually, we, we do we do feel as an opportunity to to broaden our offer now across the Oldermore family, if you like. Um, savings has within Oldermore tended to be um, operating relative isolation to the, to the lending businesses, and I think we, we recognise that there's more we can do in terms of. Uh, distributing savings across uh, our mortgage business and our, and our SME lending and, and corporate lending businesses. So I think that's one opportunity that I think we will will definitely um, uh, get behind. Um, if I think about some of the interesting kind of product and market opportunities, um, I mean, since the demise of um, Help to Buy ISA um, last year, I still think there's an opportunity in, in the UK market for savings to sort of step up and support um, first-time buyers, they have kind of two real pain points, if you think about it. One is they need to build capital for a deposit, most obviously, but also they need to build a, a track record, if you like, for, for credit worthiness. And I think there's, um, particularly with the demise of Help to Buy ISA, um, we think there's an opportunity to um, build a proposition which is targeted at first-time buyers or, or potential first-time buyers, linking in with the, uh, the so-called bank of mum and dad, and really trying to tackle those kind of key pain points around getting on the housing ladder, as I say, building capital, as well as building um, a credit a credit profile as well. So that's kind of one area that I think is worth, um, is worth exploring. I think in terms of the more here and now, um, I mean, this has been an interesting year, hasn't it, to sort of say the least? Um, yeah. Which we could probably discuss at length. <laughs> I think uh, what it's what it's done for us, James, is I think it's kind of led us to um, uh, fill some gaps in our in our portfolio as we sort of tackle with the um, sort of fluctuations in, in in demand. So I think one of the areas that's this is not new to the market, but would be new to Oldermore, would be to explore this sort of re- restricted access market, so called. So those accounts that kind of sit between um, pure easy access and say fixed rates. And I think that's an interesting um, market space. And again, I think it's right for the times. You know, the idea that you offer people um, a higher rate than they might get otherwise from easy access, but also with some with some accessibility that you wouldn't get with a with a fixed rate. So I think that's quite an interesting um, interesting space as well. So that, there's kind of two areas that we're sort of particularly looking at. I think if I look about the, the servicing proposition. Um, I talked about this combination of digital and human. Um, I think you can always invest in your digital processes. I mean, the, the website is our only shop. You know, we don't have a branch network. We don't distribute through um, brokers. Um, so our website is our, is our shop, and and the, and, the, and the online journey is our is our only journey. So, by definition, we have to continuously invest in that customer experience. Um, whether it's account opening or, or account servicing. So, you know, we obsess about, um, for example, customers who drop out of the journey. Um, you know, in my mind, it, it's um, it's a crime that somebody has taken the trouble to to find you, 
start an application and then for some reason uh, not get to the end. And um, we really need to make sure we get better at um, improving those those digital conversion rates uh, and not having to replace those lost customers with by, by trying to find them elsewhere through through marketing or, or pricing. So that kind of continuous investment in in the journey. Um, I talked about some of the the um, the offline processes and some of those more complex ones where I just think we need to take a fresh look at those processes. That um, they can often go wrong. They're often a source of complaints, and I think um, those more complex, emotionally intense processes, you just got to get them right, um, and um, and really think about how to do that using a combination of, of digital, but also people people service as well. So I think you know back to your question, I think it's a combination of, of market opportunity, product development, and kind of customer experience would probably be the sort of the three main headings. The restricted access piece is is a really interesting one it's it started to uh gain a little bit of momentum recently i think there's inc- increasingly a recognition that that a lot of people want to retain some form of access but that doesn't necessarily mean that they want to be in and out of that savings account all the all the time it's that kind of security i think isn't it of almost knowing that you you can get at it if you need to but but it's um that doesn't necessarily mean as a, a saver you 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 actually want to do that correct i mean I, I think it's one of those kind of best of both worlds yeah i think, I think it really does uh, feel like it's right for the times um i mean you know i know there's products out there already um so it's not it's not innovative in in, the, in that sense but we, we feel it's a a gap in our range at least and um i think it's you know it's one of those products that i think you know, appeals to people because um, you don't know when you want the money, but but knowing that you can get access to it, I think is important in a way that with a fixed rate, by definition, it, it's locked away. Yeah, we, we've seen a we've seen a huge amount of new new entrants come into the, the savings market in the the past a decade. Uh, that, you, that you've you've said that set the ball rolling, and it's been around fifty now. A mixture of of new licenses and and, and existing providers who weren't in the market have come come in there's more new banks on the on the way i think uh, i think we may see some um this month uh what sort of challenge does that pose for for older more i think first of all you, you have to accept that that more competition is is ultimately a, a good thing particularly for for consumers of course because they tend to come in with with good rates and, and more choice but also i think as an existing provider it it keeps you on your toes it, and it and it as i said earlier it kind of ensures that you are continuously um, innovating across the piece, really. So I, I do think it's ultimately um, a good thing. I think what's interesting about the UK market is, you know, despite that growth in rivalry, as you, as you say, James, there's still a huge gap between the, the challenger community and, and, and the large established banks. You know, whether you look at that through through the lens of, of rates or, or service or, or experience, there's clear blue water between the challenges and the and the incumbents so i think you know despite the rising competition there's still plenty of market to go for i mean the market remains you know very concentrated even now i mean probably something like three quarters of the market is probably still uh, accounted for by the top four or five banking brands in the uk even even higher in business savings actually so yeah. there's plenty of market space um despite the the growth in rivalry and i think it just as i say basically drives innovation and is ultimately you know good good for savers 
I think uh, I think it's going to be particularly uh, interesting potentially uh, next year. I think there's been a number that have uh, have, have seen their their applications sort of take a little bit longer to get through this year than than would be expected because of the the climate. We we could see a late a late run this year and a strong strong start to 2021 and potentially some big names in there with uh, JP Morgan Chase yes, Brand and, exactly. and, and John Lewis uh, looking. I think what's interesting about the nature of the new entrants, I mean, they really do span the spectrum, don't they? So as you say, at one yeah. end, you've got the, the merchant banks looking to to build a retail franchise. I mean, obviously, most notably Marcus, but, but then, as you alluded to, people like JP Morgan, I think, are rumoured to be entering. And, and at the other end of the spectrum, you've got these very small, almost fintech providers. And so it's quite interesting that you've got this real diversity in the in the size and nature of the new entrants. I mean, certainly the, the merchant bank model is a, um, is a very disruptive one, and they've got deep pockets. They c- they can um, use penetration pricing very effectively. Obviously, that's what you know Marcus ha- have done in, in recent years. So they they, they probably represent a, a bigger threat. It's, it's fair to say. Um, so to, to the likes of Oldenmore, but you know the market, as I said earlier, the market is still so concentrated that there's plenty of space to go around. There's there's plenty of headroom, I think, for all these new brands and and the existing challenger banks to to still grow, but we certainly don't feel in Oldermore in any way market constrained, despite the rise in rivalry. You know, there's still plenty to go at. And I think as long as you keep innovating and ensuring that there's this gap between yourselves and, and where the, most of the money still is, which is in the big established banks, then you know, the opportunity remains. I agree. I think I mean, it's a huge market, isn't it? It's approaching sort of 1.7 trillion in inside so there's there's plenty to go around still um it's, it's been a hugely changing market in the in the past decade or so what what do you think we're going to see in the next few few years well i guess most obviously and significantly the the, the interest rate environment obviously remains you know very low ultra low by historic standards um you know, by definition that's that's not great for savers it's obviously good news for, for borrowers of course but it's not good for savers and that outlook is is expected to remain, you know, low for for the foreseeable future. I think the point is, though, it's all about the relative position rather than than, than the absolute, James. So, you know, despite you know rates that even start with a zero, you know, the market is still such that you can get you know fifty, eighty, hundred times more interest um, with a challenger than you can with a with an established bank. In fact, you know, paradoxically, savers are probably more rate sensitive. Uh, given the low rating environment, because they're trying to find that elusive yield and they're trying to find a real rate of return. Um, so I think that's perhaps the most obvious kind of economic backdrop. I mean, you've got the sort of the prospect of negative rates that's being talked about quite a lot at the moment. I mean, personally, I think that's probably um, a distant prospect. Um, I understand the rationale behind it, you know, to sort of stimulate the economy. I think as far as savings is concerned, it would represent a kind of existential threat if that if that was to happen. I mean, the very notion that you have to pay to um, to have your savings with a bank is is kind of a, a whole new paradigm, and in fact, actually could lead to all sorts of unintended consequences. You know, whether yeah. that's things like hoarding of cash or or shifting to you know riskier equity equity based products. So, I think the it'll be interesting to watch. But my fear is that the that the cure of negative interest rates might be might be worse than the the, the disease, if you like. Um, 
I think another trend I'd pick out, and it's particularly true this year, is um, I think the, the COVID crisis has probably exposed just how precarious many people's kind of household finances are. Um, we've, we've, we've surveyed um, several groups this year, and it's surprising what percentages of people you know, have decided to, to prioritise their savings, particularly among younger people. Of course, one of the paradoxes of the, of the crisis, if, if you're in work and being paid, then the chances are your expenditure has gone down. Um, and that came through, as, as I'm sure you know, earlier in the year, the, the savings market grew very strongly uh, in, in the sort of first half of this year, you know, really, really strong growth as people spent less uh, and consequently saved more. I mean, the market softened a bit in, in recent months. But I do think the, the crisis has been a bit of a wake-up call for many people to to sort of increase their level of, of ready day savings and build that financial um, re resilience. Uh, we talked about new entrants. I think they will definitely keep coming. Um, and that's ultimately, you know, say good for, good for consumers and keeps the incumbents um, on their toes. I think there's innovation in products still to come. I mean, it's interesting in, in a low yield, low rate environment, you're sort of seeing the emergence of these kind of you know, different ways of paying interest. So these sort of, you know, prize draw um, based accounts, for example. Um, I also think we might see um, the return of structured products back into the market. You know, these products offer a combination of uh, capital protection um, and, the, and the potential for higher returns linked to external indices. Now, I'm the first to accept these products have had a, you know, a checkered reputation. Um, but I think the, the current kind of conduct regime is now such that you know you would have to demonstrate very rigorous um, product design and very rigorous distribution. And I think you know if you pass those tests, there's no reason why these products couldn't be a legitimate choice for for some customers. I think mobile apps will will develop in the customer journey. I mean they're relatively unusual as standalone features in the UK market. Uh, they tend to be linked to current accounts but i think it's inevitable that um, mobile apps will only become you know increasingly part of the kind of core service for for savers as well so i think when i look across the future i think whether it's in terms of you know rates competition product development market development i think there's still lots of interesting things to to, to work on um and you know ultimately these are good things for consumers uh, you know the crisis you know nobody wanted the crisis let's be honest but if it does lead to an increase in the savings ratio and an improvement in people's financial resilience, then that must be a good thing. Yeah, I I agree. I agree. I, you, you mentioned there the the rate cuts. Obviously, uh, hard hard to have any conversation about savings at the moment without mentioning the national savings and investments. Yes, uh, significant cuts uh, recently. Uh, um, what sort of impact? Uh, do you still see that that having on on you know both yourselves and the wider market? A huge impact, James. I mean, there's no doubt that NS and I have you know had a profound impact on 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 the retail savings market, um, and in many ways, you know, distorted the market. I mean, they had Best Buy pricing for for a lot of this year. They've certainly absorbed you know a lot of the market inflows, and then of course they recently announced some dramatic rate cuts which take effect at the end of uh, November. So, you know, we're seeing a real um, sort of seesaw uh, strategy there. And there's no doubt that they've had a major impact on, on the market and, um, and the players within that market, particularly the smaller players, 
uh, and account us in in that um, because we tend to appeal to the more rate sensitive customer then I think we've tended to lose out as it were as NSNI uh, priced aggressively earlier in the year but conversely we're probably now gaining as people leave them so I think it has had a big impact um, it'll be really interesting to see how NSI plays out actually because they have a net financing target to hit by the government and so it's quite possible in my mind if they see sustained and material outflows over the next few weeks and months then it seems reasonable to me that they might actually re-enter the market potentially in 2021 in order to hit that um, that net financing target so an interesting one um, I mean currently as I say they're about to go right down the rate tables so um I think in the short term, it's really going to be how the market deals with that um, likely increase in outflows coming out of NSNI and where that money ends up, whether it ends up in people's current accounts or more likely, uh, as people seek yield, uh, enters the um, the challenger banks. I think I think it's been it's been really interesting to see how how it goes. I I, I agree with you on the the net financing target. I I think the the cuts are so s- severe that. Uh, that unless there's a, a change in that financing target, I think they'll be forced to come back uh, on some of the pricing in in the new year to to make sure that they hit that target for the uh, for the, for the end of March and the end of their their financial year. I, I, I hate to use a COVID analogy, but I think we've had the uh, the first wave of, uh, of 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 impact of of the announcement with people who kind of took the money straight away, but. I think we're in a calm before the the second wave, which will come later this month. With with people who are sitting there saying, "Well, there's no point in moving at the moment. I can't get anything like what uh, what I'm getting, so I'll, I'll milk it to the yes, final I moment agree. and then and then shift." So I think we're in for another period of volatility later this month when when that money starts to to shift uh, and, and all the indications. Um, anecdotally are that there's still a significant amount of activity it's still very still difficult to get on the the nsni website and and, and log on which suggests that they're still seeing fairly high high volumes which i think um will only will only increase nearer to that, that deadline for the for the changes right? I, mean, I think december is traditionally quite a quiet month for savings certainly for <clears throat> for driving inflows it tends to be a month of outflows of course but I suspect this month, this year rather, I suspect it might be quite different. I think December could be an interesting month, as you say, as that yeah. money flows out and people actually, once they got get through the wait times or, or the website times, that they will actually look for, you know, a fresh home for that for that money. So yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. And unlike you, I do think they may well return to the market at some point next year. I think uh, the, the also the current, you know, the current environment with with people in lockdown means people are going to be around to be able to make those yes, quite those calls and 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 log on and 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 actually, you know, have the patience to sit there and wait if things are taking a bit bit longer. Whereas maybe in in other times, people have gone, yeah, you know, I can't really, can't be bothered, or it's not worth the hassle. But I think at the moment, people have got the, you know, got the time and are are able to to do that. So I I think it'd be really interesting to follow. Uh, I, I'm hey, yeah, talking. We, we're kind of slightly uh, veering towards politics, and uh, uh, Rishi's been busy today announcing extensions. He has the right. furlough scheme. Uh, if you were Chancellor for the day, what's yeah? What's the one? I appreciate he's had a 
had other things on his mind <laughs> and savings. But if 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 he were able to focus on it and you were in his shoes, what what would you be looking at? What would be the well, what change you'd make? <laughs> what a yeah, at this point, um, am I allowed to, James? Can I, can I have? Of course, two? you can. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I would first of all, I would definitely bring in the proposals around SEER. So single easy access rate. So this is the the consultation that yep. the FCA are doing, which in effect is about um, uh, obliging providers to publish and set a single um, easy access rate for um, their personal savings and also their easy access cash ISAs. Um, we think that's a great idea. It's it's basically very customer centric. It, it's it's transparent by definition. It it promotes competition uh, and and switching. And, it, and it's good for the consumer. I think the FCA have estimated that there's about 260 million of potentially higher interest payments that could be could be generated. I mean, at Aldermore, we've already got effectively already got a SEER. We've only ever had one um, uh, go-to uh, rate on our on our Easy Access account. You know, we've, we've never used um, uh, introductory rates. So, you know, in effect, we're already kind of SEER ready, if you like. But I think in the in the market yeah. context, I think it's a, it's a, it's a it's an important development. Um, I think it's a way of nudging people to consider, you know, whether they can get a better rate. As I said earlier, a lot of the money in savings is still concentrated in in the big established banks paying, you know, next to nothing. And so, I think that initiative is is a welcome one for for consumers and competition generally. So that'd be my first one. Uh, and my second one, if I may, is um, around the tax environment. For, for savings, which I think probably could do with some simplification. Um, if you take the you know, the ISA regime, it, it is quite complex. Uh, and of course, you've now got the, the personal savings allowances as well. So it seems to me that the government could potentially create you know, a single tax wrapper um, in some way, combining the, the existing regimes, and really then use that to actively promote people to, uh, to save more. I think in doing that, James, I'd also find a way to consciously bias that tax favorability towards maybe the lower income or, or younger age groups who, let's face it, need need to save more, whether it's you know whether it's first time buyers or, or or just rainy day. I think the COVID crisis has has really exposed some people's kind of precarious financial position. So, you know, whether it's SEER or, or whether it's the tax treatment, I do think the government can and probably should take action to ultimately drive you know a higher savings ratio in, in this country i i think that's a couple of really really good ones up i'm not so sure myself on on how effective the seer will be but what what i do think is actually um there there, there would never be a, there will never be a better time than this to actually get it get it through i think you've got more chance than ever of getting getting people within the industry to sign up up to it i and I, I guess I'm in the camp of I certainly certainly would welcome from a savings perspective anything that that would would help and and anyone that's uh, listened to me or read anything I've written um, over the over the years will know I'm a big fan of of simplifying the the current tax savings regime. Uh, it, was, it was beautifully simple when it was brought in and it's become uh, anything but uh, in in recent years and and. I agree with you on the assisting people to get to to get you know get started and get get saving. I think the the help to save uh, that that uh, Cameron Osborne brought in was uh, 
was a really good idea, but uh, wrongly executed. But I think uh, uh, yeah, a, a revamp of of something like that um, would be, you know, would be would be really. I think really so. Good. Keeping it simple and you know to be able to pass the acid test of being able to ask somebody in the street, you know, could you almost spontaneously be able to, um, you know, describe the tax treatment? I mean that. Sounds a bit daft when you say it like that, but you know, the ability for people to get it quickly and easily, I think it has grown arms and legs over the years. You know, well-intended arms and legs, but I think, yes. I think, I think there is an opportunity to simplify and rationalise. And, and as we're both probably agreeing, actually, to just to find a way to, um, in some way, you know, bias it to those people that, that need to be saving rather than, as it were, rewarding people who have already saved. Um, I think that's where I think the government can and, and should probably intervene. Yeah, I, I, I think unfortunately we may have to wait a little while for, for, for that. But I do hope it's. Um, I, I think it possibly was on the agenda, but it's been pushed, pushed down. But I do hope it comes. Yes. Comes back. Yeah, we do too. Um, you and it's been an absolute pleasure uh, to to talk to you. It's been a, a really um, diverse and interesting uh, show to re- to record today. So. I want to say thank you very much for thank you for, for coming on and giving us your, your time. It's been it's been really interesting, and I I hope it's good good listen. Thank you, James. I, I really enjoyed it too. Thanks very much, you and take care, James. Thank you. Mm-hmm.